Professor Melissa Brown started her PhD investigating blood cancers at Australia's oldest medical research institute. Her research then took her to the Imperial Cancer Research and King's College in London, contributing to the work on BRCA1, a genetic mutation central to understanding and predicting hereditary breast cancer. Melissa's career has also been bookmarked by leadership roles. She's worked as convener for higher degree by research students, deputy head of school, head of school, and now executive dean for the Faculty of Science at the University of Queensland. And she did all of this while balancing teaching and PhD supervision. In our conversation, Melissa talks about working across countries, managing your time while still taking on opportunities and new challenges, and addresses imposter syndrome in a way you may not have considered before. Recorded on International Women's Day. Welcome to a very special episode of today's Women in Science podcast. And it's a very special episode because we are recording on International Women's Day. It's also a very special episode because we're joined by Melissa Brown, who, for those of you who don't know, is actually my boss's boss. So I need to be on my best behaviour. But aside from that, welcome, Melissa. Thanks, Kirsty, and happy International Women's Day. It's a real privilege to be here today and to talk to you about life in science as a woman. Well, we're delighted to have you and I'd love to start, if you don't mind, a bit with your pre-PhD life. So where did you do your undergraduate education? What made you want to do a PhD? Okay, well, that takes me back many decades, but very strong memories nonetheless. I did my undergraduate science degree at the University of Melbourne Finished in the early 1980s and majored in microbiology and biochemistry, which were what my two great major. <laughs> yes, what a great two major. Favorite subjects. So, absolutely loved it. Never would have thought that's where I'd end up in terms of majors, but really enjoyed it. Got to the end of the degree and, and especially loved doing the practical activities. This was at the beginning of molecular biology, right? So this was a really super exciting time to be learning about DNA and to actually be able to, you know, see it on gels and, and just do incredible practicals given the time when we were doing them. But I wasn't sure what next. So I decided to complete my degree and then go and work for a little while. So I went to CSIRO in the Division of Protein Chemistry and and worked there for three years. That was wonderful. I learned a lot and I loved doing the research, but I found that the more I became able to do things on my own, the more I wanted to do things on my own. And I started to find it really challenging to be told what to do because I was starting to sort of think, oh, no, I'd like to do it another way. I can or... identify with that. Yep. <laughs> yes. So, so I, I talked that through with my supervisor and my colleagues and so on. And I got pretty universal advice that it was a good idea to go back and do some further study, which is what I did. So I left CSIRO, I gave up a continuing appointment and superannuation and all of that to do honours, best decision ever. I did well and then went on and did a PhD at the Walter and Eliza Hall Institute in Melbourne. And what was your honours and PhD in? I know at, at some point you deviated from the wonderful path of microbiology. Was it, was it at this point? The work I did at CSIRO was about vaccine development. Mm-hmm. 
against uh, infectious bursal disease virus, which is really important in the poultry industry. My honours project was about viruses as well, but it was about endogenous retroviruses and the role that they play in cancer development. That got me excited about cancer research, and so my PhD project was about the role of growth factors in cancer development in blood cancers. So then after your PhD, you went overseas to do a postdoc. How did you find working overseas? What was the cultural differences that you noticed? And is, is there things that you picked up from working overseas that you tried to bring back to Australia? Yeah. Oh, look, I had a fantastic time overseas. So I went firstly to the Imperial Cancer Research Fund, which was in central London, which was an amazing experience, really exciting project working on breast cancer susceptibility genes. Great people and great friends for life. I'm still in contact with most of those people. Got to attend incredible meetings and conferences, both in Europe and also in the US, and a really amazing lifestyle with being able to travel easily to incredible destinations. So cultural differences, you you wouldn't think so, but absolutely. It was really interesting. And and I think somebody said to me once, straight off the banana boat or something equally offensive (laughs) about being an Australian. So the, the thing with being an Australian in England is they can't place you in their class system. So you're a little bit of an unknown and, and playing with that is, is quite a lot of fun. But <laughs> look, we did enjoy it, learnt a lot. But once you're in a laboratory and you've got a set of pipettes, it really doesn't matter whether you're in Melbourne or London. It's, it's all pretty much the same. And your work there, you were working on BRCA1. Can you talk to the audience a little bit about what that is and, and why that work is important? Yeah, so this was in the early 90s now, and this was at a point not many years after the first gene that was associated with a human disease had been isolated. So it was a really exciting time in genetics that it was possible to actually isolate these genes and understand what their role is in a particular disease, understand what mutations were held, and actually to be able to implement some of that into changes in clinical practice, like having diagnostic tests and and looking to treatments. It was just wonderful to be involved in a project that was looking for the first breast cancer susceptibility gene. I think it's fair to say there was a fair bit of competition. That was part of the learning of how you actually operate in a really globally competitive area. And, you know, I think things are a bit different now. I think people would tend to collaborate and all come together in one one amazing group rather than trying to sort of compete. But anyway, it was it was an amazing time to be there and the outcome of that work was really understanding about gene regulation of these genes and that got me excited about gene regulation actually and and how defects in gene regulation can contribute to disease as well as changes that impact the protein. Mm, So it's not just changes in the gene itself, it's changes in how it's switched on, switched off. Exactly, exactly, yes. And so then you moved back to Australia and was that sort of a strategic move? Were you done with British weather? Was it a lifestyle decision or both? Uh, yes, yes and yes. Uh, <laughs> and and probably another another few things. Look, I think there were two main drivers and the big driver was, was family actually and, and being at home. So we'd been away for six years at that point. The weather 
in England is different, certainly to the weather in Queensland, and that might have come into it. I had a long commute, lived in Oxford during the time I was working in London. So when the weather wasn't kind, that was quite a challenging trip. But it was really wanting to be back with family. So, so, Kirsty, this is at a time where there was no email, there was no FaceTime. Communication essentially meant writing air letters, which I don't even think are a thing anymore. And occasionally when we'd saved up enough money making a phone call, and phone calls were, international phone calls were incredibly expensive then, so you'd talk for maybe three minutes. So it was a time where the abilities to sustain close relationships over a distance were really difficult. So actually the prospect of being at home with family was was really exciting. The other main driver was I was ready to become more independent. So I'd been in a really large group, firstly at the Imperial Cancer Research Fund and then following that at King's College London. That was really exciting and really, really fun. But I was starting to sort of get itchy feet and wanting to sort of do things on my own. Now I did have an opportunity to do that in London. I could have kept going there, but opportunities came up in Melbourne and um, that sort of ticked both of those boxes and so initially returned to Australia to Melbourne University again. Yeah it seems incredible to imagine a time where you were just dependent on on snail mail for, for that family contact. When you moved back to Australia you eventually moved to Queensland. Do you want to talk about that move a little bit and what triggered that? Sure. So I was on a fixed term appointment at the University of Melbourne. An opportunity came up to come to the University of Queensland, which was in the early 2000s. That was something that suited my husband and, and myself. It's always difficult when there's two individuals who have got career aspirations to actually manage that. And, and on balance, that was the best outcome for both of us. The intent was not necessarily to stay for a long time or forever. That was 23 years ago. <laughs> How's that going for you? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Look, UQ's been really, really kind to both of us. It's been a wonderful experience being here and we've been really well looked after and it's been the right decision for us and, and our family. You were at SCMB, an excellent school, if I may say so myself. And in that position, you were the HDR convener, deputy head, and then head of school, which is quite a lot of tasks to take on. So was that something that you did alongside running a research group and teaching? How did you juggle those tasks? Yeah, I did do them alongside teaching, but as the roles got bigger, the ability to sustain that level of activity changed. So as research higher degree coordinator, that was probably 20% commitment. So it was a sort of like a standard service commitment for an academic. And I had a research group that was probably almost 20 people at that point. And I had a pretty reasonable teaching load and that was doable and it was fine. Then as the roles became bigger and particularly so head of school was probably about 60%, it became a little bit more challenging to do that. And then you start having to sort of make compromises with time and that's where it gets a little bit difficult because I'm sort of person like, like most people who want to do things well and that requires time. And if you don't have that and then you don't think you're doing things the way you want to do them, it becomes really personally challenging. Mm. What did you enjoy about these new roles in particular? 
Or okay. what didn't you enjoy? Oh, yes. Well, I, I, I've, I've thought about this and I've <laughs> written some notes and I'm worried because my things I enjoy is, is not is is not quite as long, but it might just be the way I've written it. Uh, anyway, look, what I love is the pace. Research is wonderful and exciting when it works, and that's a percentage of time, which isn't all the time, and I won't put a number on that because it sort of depends on a whole lot of different factors, you know, and then you get to it and then you've got to go back to the start and that that's something that can be a bit frustrating with research. So it's, the pace is something I enjoy. It's very stimulating. There's enormous potential to have impact. And for me, the things that get me out of bed in the morning are being able to generate opportunities for staff and students to help them to progress in their career. That's my most important thing. And I feel I can do that at a scale that's bigger than, you know, wonderful to have a research group and wonderful to help those people. But that was at a scale of, you know, say 15 people compared to at the moment there's 1,200 staff in the Faculty of Science so that scale and also having roles that can have impact across the university and also at a national level to really really have impact so they're the things that I love. The things that are less enjoyable is really just the time commitments that you have in these roles so you know you can have a situation where your diary is completely full and you're getting more than 100 emails a day and and no matter what you do and no matter how late you stay up and how many hours you put in you just can't keep on top of it and that is something which I find hard because I'm the sort of person that likes to be responsive to people and if people ask me a question I like to get back to them and I like to have a solution I like to solve problems so if somebody says I've got a problem here I like to get back to them in a perfect world, I would like to be able to do that just like that straight away. But I'm, I'm, I find that sometimes I don't even get the opportunity to reply because there simply isn't enough hours in the day. So that's a frustration for me, and I guess that's about living with the reality that you can't get back to everyone. But I do find that hard. That's that's a hard part of the job. Mm. I think that's quite common for a lot of senior people, whether it's in academia or, or if you were a CEO or if you were running a business, it just gets to a point where there's a lot there's there's a lot to do. We were talking about your transition into full-time academic leadership. What advice would you offer to people who were, say, currently researchers or currently teaching and research and looking to go into academic leadership? I'd say start small and if you have the opportunity to have a service role, it doesn't matter what it is and it doesn't matter whether you're chair or not, demonstrate leadership in that role. So take something on, negotiate a project that you're going to take and that you're going to see it through and that you're going to come back with outcomes. So I think that that's important for a couple of reasons. It's really important through our promotion process that people can actually say what they did and rather than the activity, they can talk about outcomes. So that's really important for their career progression. It's also important because you get a taste of what it's like to do that. And for me, that was what the clincher was because I did a couple of things like that and I just thought, oh, this is fun. I can actually do things at a speed that's more aligned with my personality and I could feel that I was doing something that was helpful to the school or or to individuals. That's what I would say. Start small and then if you like it, see what opportunities are there 
to go on to something more substantial, use the annual performance uh, development process to talk to supervisors about what might be coming up. Don't wait until someone taps you on the shoulder, but look and see what's around. It's probably in the school, but it might not be. It might be more broad than that. So keep your mind open. And it doesn't necessarily have to be leadership within the university. There's all sorts of things that people can do in professional societies and with conference organising, etc., etc., lots of external opportunities. And, and see if you like leadership roles. Some people do and some people do not. So, yeah, I wouldn't commit, I wouldn't go sort of headlong into something unless you're sure that you're going to like it. I think one of the really important things in research and teaching and academic leadership is about having a good team around you. Yes. Would you have any advice for, for how do you build that team and create a cohesive team to support you? Yeah, that's it, it, it is absolutely critical. So it's partly about the roles and so having a think, even before you start thinking about the people, what are the roles that you need around you and that that might not necessarily be the way it is at the time when you take on a role. This applies to all sorts of leadership roles in all sorts of contexts, just thinking about what what is the support that you need and also how can those support roles be developmental for the people that take them on. Then it's about people that would fit with those roles. So having conversations with people, looking around and looking broadly, going out for an internal role. So, you know, with the Faculty of Science that we restructured the leadership team in the faculty back in 2017. And I have a really, really clear memory of sitting in a hotel room in Sydney, going on to our HR system and seeing that for each of these various roles that we'd put up, that there were more and more applications coming in because the fear is when you create something like that that nobody actually wants to do it. So we had amazing applicants and, and spent a lot of time thinking really carefully about who were the right people individually for the individual roles, but also to create that team environment. That's been fantastic fun, actually. And if I look at the people that were appointed to those roles then and where they are now, I mean, people have gone on to great careers as a consequence of that, and that's really, really pleasing. So it's also how you manage people and and trying not to overmanage or micromanage people, giving people the authority to do stuff uh, and the resources to do stuff. How do you empower them to be successful as individuals, but also as part of that team and also as, as members of the faculty or the school or the, or the university. So that's, that's it. I was wondering what your thoughts were as to what we can do as women in science to support and encourage other women, be they peers or future students, researchers, anyone on your team, any suggestions? Yeah, I think it's, it is one of the most satisfying parts of the role actually is to and and back to the previous question one of the most satisfying things was the number of women who were interested in these roles and that was just wonderful so I think it's about supporting people but not sort of smothering them I think it's about being positive and optimistic and giving really good feedback to people that's helpful and it's not always positive it might be something that's constructive 
I think it's about taking the time to listen to what's happening. So I'm a big fan of having regular catch-ups with people on a weekly or fortnightly basis to, you know, what are the issues, how can I help, what are you worried about, etc. Being authentic and really being honest about how things are going. I think helping women to have confidence in themselves is really important as well because that can sometimes be challenging. Mm. So one of the big themes that we've had come across multiple episodes of this podcast is imposter syndrome and in particular imposter syndrome amongst women. How have you felt or dealt with that in your career? Yes, I have. And I am one of those people that falls into that category. And and I think that many women have this situation. So a wise person said to me recently that it's not just about the people that suffer from imposter syndrome, but it's also about the people that cause that to happen. And I think a lot of the focus when I read things or or watch things about imposter syndrome is how to manage it yourself, how to manage yourself and to feel more confident and to not feel like you're an imposter. But less focus is on the people who they don't mean to do it and they don't even know they're doing it, but will say things that are sometimes a little bit thoughtless that can actually aggravate that situation. So I do wonder whether there isn't a case to, you know, not just be training and mentoring people that have imposter syndrome, but having, you know, some principles and training for everyone actually to make sure that they don't inadvertently and I know they don't mean to do it they say something and I've had this experience where you'll you'll have a meeting with someone and they'll say something and you can feel the confidence just draining out of you straight away to the point that you sort of think I I can't even respond to that it's not done intentionally but I think that An awareness of that Mm. is probably important. And an awareness across all sides. So mindfulness, I guess, of of what we say and and what sort of impact that has. Yes, yes. Moving forward and looking towards the future, is there any particular aspect of university life that you're really excited about at the moment or that you think is going to be really, really important in the next few years? Yes, there is. And it's uh, in the form of the university accord process. So this is a reform of the higher education sector. It's the first time that this has happened for, I think, 14 years. We have the opportunity to feed into this. And the question that's being asked is, what should universities in Australia look like in 30 years' time? Now, if I go back 30 years, I couldn't have possibly imagined what things would be like now. So I think it it does take people with vision to really think about what we should do. How can we make things better? There's a huge sense of optimism about this process. I'm really excited to contribute where I can and to see how it progresses over the course of this year. And finally, if you could look back and give some advice to your younger self, what, what would that be? What would that look like? I would say to younger me to have more faith and confidence in yourself because I think that was certainly an issue. Don't worry about things that you can't control uh, and don't worry about things that are very unlikely to happen. I think sometimes you (laughs) can sort of worry about things that are never going to happen. And also enjoy what you're doing when you're doing it. When you're 
someone that's sort of moving at pace, trying to get things done, trying to tick things off the list, try and get on to the next thing, you can sometimes not stop and pause and sort of think, actually, this is really good or actually, I'm really enjoying this. And it can be something as small as going to a particular meeting and just sort of sitting and sitting back and thinking about it and thinking, what a privilege this is to be in this meeting and having this discussion or to go to an event or to go to a, a conference and to really enjoy it in the moment rather than just sort of trying to get on to the next thing. Thank you very much for your time today and that really insightful advice. It's much appreciated. Okay, my pleasure. Thanks, Kirsty. You've been listening to Women in Science. Your donation can help us tell more stories like this one. You can find the donation link in the episode notes. Production for this episode was by Dr Marina Fortes, Dr Marluce Decker and Dr Kirsty Short. Senior technical production was by Dan Seed. Make sure you subscribe to Women in Science. Thanks for listening.